You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. The following sermon is from our series in the book of Revelation. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Moving to verse 22 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. What a vision this is, Father that you have given to your servant John centuries ago and that has been preserved for us in the scripture. And as we think about it and consider this morning um, these words, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would reveal their truth to us and their beauty to us. We pray that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And as we Look in these verses on the future that awaits those who are in Christ by faith. We pray that you would draw us to yourself. Spirit, we ask that you would move and awaken our longings and our desires for the new world that you were one day going to usher in. And Father, in the midst of this current world, which is filled with hardship and struggle and brokenness, 
We ask, Father, that we would be lights, that we would be vessels of your grace and truth, that we would be people who live with an abiding hope because we know that there is an inheritance that awaits us that we can't even begin to comprehend right now. And so, God, we pray that you would grant to us by faith a bit of insight into what you have for us in the new heavens and the new earth, and that you would do that because you love us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1988, Bob Dylan was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and giving his opening induction speech at the ceremony is another one of my favorite musicians, Bruce Springsteen, better known as The Boss. And Springsteen, in his introduction of Dylan, talks about the first time he heard one of Dylan's most famous songs, Like a Rolling Stone. And here's what Springsteen says. The first time I heard Bob Dylan, I was in the car with my mom listening to WMCA radio, and on came that snare shot that sounded like somebody had kicked open the door of your mind. Dylan had the vision and talent to make a pop song so that it contained the whole world. He changed the face of rock and roll forever and ever. Springsteen goes on to talk about, in that speech, how that song and Dylan's music in general awakened the longing in his own life for music and to perform and to create. And he repeats again and again that for him, Dylan's songs awoke purpose. They awoke desire. He had an awakening to the vision of what he thinks is the good life, to a vision of his own future. And the reason I opened with that this morning, other than the fact that I like Dylan and Springsteen, is the fact that we all, we all to some degree or another have our own vision of what the good life is. We all have our own vision of our future that we would want, that we would hope for, whether we know it or not. We're all living in our lives now for what we are hoping for in our lives in the future. We live for what we long for. That's a fundamental truth of humanity. And the Bible knows that this is true about us. And in these final chapters of this final book in the Bible, Revelation, God is intending to awaken our longings for a vision of his future, for a vision of his new world, for his renewing all things, Because here's the the truth, friends. That's really the only thing worthy of our full and final hopes. And make no mistake, these chapters are in the Bible for you this morning to hear, no matter where you are spiritually right now, these chapters are in the Bible because God wants to use them to capture your heart. He wants to awaken your affections for the only person that is worth our ultimate longing and desires, Jesus himself. We've made our way through Revelation in the past few months. If you're new with us this morning, we're reaching the conclusion today before we head into a new series in the coming weeks. And we've seen again and again that this great and sometimes mystifying book is really about the truth that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus is going to triumph over the evil of this world, over the devil, over our own sin. And the triumph of Jesus comforts the people of God now as we are under siege and as we are in suffering. That's the point of Revelation. And this last vision of the book that John the Apostle sees is intended to complete the picture for us. 
It gives us a vision of what God is going to do. It's a vision of the redeemed world that God is going to make. It gives us a glimpse of what awaits those who connect their lives to Jesus by faith. We will get a a taste here of the resurrection life that we're all going to experience one day if we follow Christ, of the triumph we will all experience, of the joy and peace and hope that really we can only begin to taste and fathom in this life. And so there's no way we can comprehensively cover all of these wonderful chapters this morning. I would say these are two of the most important chapters in the Bible, and they are worthy of further meditation, reading, and reflection for you, maybe even this afternoon. And so we're going to do our best to cover some of it this morning, and here's how I want to summarize or make the main idea. Here's the main idea. At the end of time, God will renew all things and dwell with his people forever in a new world. It's really, really, really good news. That's what Christianity is all about. And I want to show you four things that the vision tells us about God's new world that he's making, okay? The new world, first, will be physical. Second, it will be cultural. Third, it will be safe. Fourth, God's new world will be communal. So there's your outline. Usually I just do three points, but I've got four today. Uh Uh-oh. It's trouble. So let's jump in and get rolling. First, this text tells us that the new world will be physical. Look in the first couple of verses of chapter 21. We see a new heaven and a new earth, a holy city, verse 1 and 2, and notice that John sees the new Jerusalem coming down, coming down out of heaven. So the vision shows us that when Jesus returns and executes final righteous judgment and casts the evil one into the lake of fire and renews all things, that renewal will be, in a sense, a merging of heaven and earth. This vision shows us that at the end of time, we don't so much as so much go up to heaven as heaven comes down to us. There's a new heavens and a new earth you see there. Heaven is the new earth. Part of the purpose of John showing us that is to show us that God's new world is gloriously physical. It is material. Many Christians in the Western part of the world in particular have a vision of heaven that is not at all fitting with what it's really going to be like, with what John describes here. Some of our vision, perhaps, is that heaven is just us floating on clouds with harps as disembodied spirits plucking away as the angels sing and dance over us. And friends, I want you to see that that is not the scripture's vision of God's new world. The vision shows that in the new world, we will live on this earth. We will live on this earth in its fully renewed state forever. Last week we saw that there is going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. We're all going to get resurrection bodies, physical bodies, We don't understand everything about that, but we know that we will be recognizable because Jesus was recognizable in his resurrection body. And so if we're all going to have new, perfected, glorified resurrection bodies, it makes sense that our bodies have physical space to dwell in and to live in, in the new world. And that's exactly what we see here. One theologian named Anthony Hekema in his book, The Bible in the future writes this. Listen to what he says. The new Jerusalem does not remain in a heaven far off in space, 
but it comes down to the renewed earth. There the redeemed will spend eternity in resurrection bodies. So heaven and earth, now separated, will then be merged. The new earth will also be heaven, since God will dwell there with his people. Listen, that is a part of the good news that Revelation is laying out for us. The physicality of God's new world. The physicality of heaven is a good thing. Here's why. It tells us that God is not going to let sin win in any way. In any shape, in any form, sin is not going to destroy this world. God is going to defeat sin and renew this physical, created world. That's what Revelation is getting at when it says in verse 5 that Jesus will make all things new. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans, one of his letters, chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. He says that the entire creation is groaning. It's groaning for release from its bondage to decay and awaiting the redemption of our bodies. So in a very real way, the entire physical universe awaits the day of its renewal. Isn't that a glorious picture? Here's how another writer named Randy Alcorn puts it. If God were to end history and reign forever in a distant heaven, Earth would be remembered as a graveyard of sin and failure. Instead, earth will be redeemed and resurrected. In the end, it will be a far greater world. Even for having gone through the birth pains of suffering and sin, yes, even sin, the new earth will justify the old earth's disaster, making good out of it, putting it in perspective. It will preserve and perpetuate earth's original design and heritage. Can you exercise your imaginations for a minute? Your sanctified imaginations and imagine with me how great and glorious God's new world is going to be. I want this to awaken your desires and your longings. Last summer, my family took a trip to Colorado, which we do every now and then. And uh, one of the things I love about Colorado, especially in July, you know, you get out of the just the oppressive heat of South Texas. And as soon as you get out of the car or the truck in Santa, uh, excuse me, in Colorado, I mean, I can just feel the tension leaving my body, right? Smell of, the smell of pine needles and, and the sound of birds. It's just glorious. And my family would take hikes pretty often and would be walking through the beautiful forest and looking at beautiful mountains with beautiful clear blue sky. But what inevitably happens? You look down and you see a Coke can. You see an empty candy wrapper. You see trash and pollution flowing through the creeks of Colorado. And the vision that God wants to put before you in Revelation 21 is that the new world is a place where flowers will never wilt. It, it's, a place where, it's a place where grass will never die. It's a place where the beautiful blue skies of God's world will never be polluted. There will be rivers and oceans and mountains and hills and valleys and plains. All the beauty of this world preserved, perfected, and restored with none of the effects of the curse. Does that vision not awaken your longing for God's new world? Heaven will be physical. Secondly, God's new world, according to Revelation, will be cultural. It will be cultural. 
Where do we see that? Well, in verse 2, as I already showed you, it's apparent that the new heaven and the new earth, at least in part, is described as a city. New Jerusalem. And then verses 9 through 27 really are John getting a tour of the city by an angel. And the point, of course, is that this city is a perfect city. This city is a place of fully realized glory and life. And the way John tells us that this is a perfect and complete city is through symbolism, just like in the rest of Revelation. We didn't read this part of the story, but all of the measurements of the city are multiples of the number 12. And as we've seen again and again in Revelation, 12 is a symbolic number referring to fulfillment or completion or fullness. And so what's being symbolized here is that the new city is the ultimate fulfillment of the original mandate that God gave to humanity in the garden. He told Adam and Eve and all of Adam and Eve's descendants, you and I, to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over it, to fill it and multiply. That doesn't mean we're supposed to just have a lot of babies, although it does mean that. It means also that we're to create culture. We're to create tools and art and architecture and stories and music and vocations that we might fill this world with God's creative glory and purposes. And what we see here is that the new world is the full flowering of that mission on into eternity. You see further in verses 22 and 27 the cultural importance of the new world. Look there, these verses tell us that the kings of the earth, verse 24, will bring their glory into the city. What does that mean? Well, this vision is doing what John often does. He's using Old Testament references and images. In particular here, John is referring to the prophet Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60, where Isaiah is seeing a vision of God's new world way before John saw the vision, 700 years before. And in Isaiah 60, we read that the ships of Tarshish, which is a pagan nation in the ancient world that was opposed to the Israelite people, the ships of Tarshish are making their way into the new heavens and the new earth. Here, John is building on that idea by telling us, really, that the cultural, listen, the cultural products of pagan nations are available in the new heavens and the new earth, but they are completely purified. Verse 27 says, nothing unclean will ever enter the city. What do we see here? Here's what we see. The vision of God's new world means that the culture of the nations. Everything in the cultural production of this planet that is useful and beautiful and true and worthy and noble and glorious will have a place in the new world. And whereas those products of culture are now often used by us and others for idolatrous purposes, for evil purposes, in God's new world they will be completely purified and cleansed. Listen to another theologian, Bruce Milne. Nothing of ultimate worth from the long history of the nations will be omitted from the heavenly community. Everything which authentically reflects the God of truth, all that is of abiding worth from within the national stories and the cultural inheritance of the world's peoples will find its place in the new Jerusalem. That's amazing. They will be retooled and boosted so that they serve the glory of God in that place. 
So practically, heaven will be a place of immense cultural value and productivity. There will be work, although free of the curse. There will be creations. There will be art. There will be music. There will be cooking. There will be architecture. There will be games, sports, except soccer. Soccer's not going to be there. I had to throw that in. That wasn't in my notes, but it just popped up. All this is going to be in the new world. Um, there's going to be literature. There's going to be the beauty of human achievement, creativity, and design. The remnants of the old world will be built upon in the new and fully realized world, on into eternity forever. And here's what that means practically. Listen, heaven is not going to be boring. I have a vivid memory. I grew up in the church. And I have a vivid memory of being a child in a Sunday school class growing up, hearing about heaven and thinking, I'm going to get bored. Anybody else? That's probably just me. And feeling like this shame and this guilt and thinking, forever? Really forever? I mean, I get bored watching TV. I can't, I'm bored in 10 minutes. How am I going to do something forever? I don't even like singing in the choir. What am I going to do up there forever? And I think that might be some of our own pictures of heaven. And I want you to see that what John portrays for us here is something that is never going to get old. You know, um, another thing I think about, and all of us have probably had some of these experiences where we've had an experience in this life where we think that's, we might even say, or someone might say to us, that was like a little taste of heaven. For me, it's often listening to live music. I love the power of live music. I went to see U2 in the early 2000s. And it was, such a, it was such a moving experience for me just to hear 50,000 people singing a song together as you two just rocked it. I was like, this is, this is heavenly in a sense. And I think that we need to have that sort of picture and think about it in terms that it is going to bring us that sort of fulfillment and desire and satisfaction in a completely purified, redeemed, and renewed way. Everything that is good in this life Everything that arouses our affections and loves will be present there in fullness. Think about that, friends. We're going to have eternity to learn, to work, to play, to feast, to enjoy fellowship. We can talk to others that we have longed to meet. We can learn new crafts or sports. We can build and create. The full glory of humanity made in God's image will be on display in God's new world. Doesn't that awaken your longings for what God has for his people? The new world will be physical. The new world will be cultural. Third, the new world will be safe. Look at verse 4 of chapter 21. What a moving verse. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What a picture that is. There will be in God's new world no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no death. Verse 8 tells us that evil has no place there. Listen to this. There will be nothing to fear. There will be no reason to be afraid of the dark. The vision shows us that there won't even be a need of the sun because the glory of God and the Lamb is the lamp and light of that place. It is a clean, well-lighted place. Think about what you fear now. When you're really being honest, how much of our lives revolve around 
the things we're afraid of. You know, the number one command in all of the Bible, the one that's used more than any other, is do not be afraid. Which says something. It says something about us. It says that we're very, very often afraid. Think about how often you're afraid. Think about the things that you're afraid of. Fear governs so many of our lives day to day. We're afraid of bad news. We're afraid of criminals. We're afraid of terrorists. We're afraid of bombs. We're afraid of unemployment or potential unemployment. We're afraid of the government, but we're also afraid of anarchy. We're afraid of wild animals. We're afraid of tame animals. We're afraid of scary stories. We're afraid of people we don't understand. We're afraid of having hard conversations. We're afraid of getting sick, and we're afraid of the medicine that's supposed to make us feel better. We're afraid of political decisions. We're afraid of wars. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of the present. Sometimes we're even afraid of our own past. We're afraid of the dark. Some of us tragically are afraid of our own family. We're afraid of being found out. We're afraid to really open up to people. We're afraid of betrayal. We're afraid of being lied to. We're afraid that good times will inevitably end. We're afraid of spiders and snakes and sharks. We lock our doors. We buy insurance. We keep an eye on our children. We carry weapons. So much of what we think and do in our lives is based on the fact that in this world, our fears are real. And we cannot change or control so much of what makes us afraid. Listen, friends, do you know that in God's new world, there will be no fear? Remember those old shirts, they might still be around, that said no fear? When I was a kid, I thought those were cool shirts to wear. Now I'm older, I'm like, what a joke those are. I mean, really? What kind of gumption do you have to have that wears a shirt that says no fear? I was playing tag in the backyard with my kids yesterday and slid and thought I had destroyed my ACL. I mean, I was afraid of playing tag in the backyard. We're afraid all the time. In God's new world, there will be no fear. We can hardly even imagine a life without fear. But that's what John lays out here for us, friends. In God's new world, we are, we are completely safe and secure forever. We are completely free and completely loved. We are completely immersed in the protection of an all-powerful and all-loving Father who is our light, who is our strong tower. The gates will never need to be shut. Does this vision not awaken your longings for God's new world? It's going to be safe. Physical, cultural, safe. And then lastly, we see that the new world will be communal. Now, there's a lot to say here, but I want to summarize it very simply by simply saying that the new heavens and the new earth are a place where those who are followers of Jesus and who connect to Jesus through faith will have communion, communion with God. A communion with God that is pure and perfect. You know, now in our relationships with God, we have static. You ever been on a cell phone call and this happens on conference calls, you know, all the time when I'm on a conference call. You can't hear anything. The static is so loud that there's no communication going on. Don't our relationships with God feel that way often? We pray and we feel like there's no one listening on the other end. Terrible things are happening to us and we're like, hello, anybody out there? We read the Bible and it's boring to us. 
We're at church just kind of going through the motions. We believe in God. We trust God. We can even talk about theology, perhaps. We do our duties, but they're static. There's a lack of fulfillment. There's a lack of vibrance. There's a lack of intimacy. Doesn't that get tiresome? Doesn't that get frustrating? Well, listen, that's going to end in God's new world. Look at verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, that verse right there culminates and summarizes the entire message of the Bible and really the entire purpose of this, this whole universe. God made humans to be with him forever and to enjoy him forever. Our own rebellion and evil marred and broke that relationship and purpose, but in Jesus Christ, God is going to bring it back again. He will fully and finally be our God in Jesus, and we will be his people in Jesus. Listen, the reason that you exist, the reason that you were created was to commune with, to have fellowship with the real God, and Jesus brings us that, and we will experience it forever in heaven. You know, I love what the Apostle Paul prays in his letter to the Ephesians chapter three. He says, I pray that we might know what is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. And then he says, the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. You ever catch that? He's saying, I pray that you would know something that is ultimately unknowable. And I think heaven is the eternal working out, the ever-increasing knowledge of our own communion and fellowship with our maker and redeemer. Can you think, again, use your imaginations. And let's, just, let's just think about that. What will it be like to know God fully? What will it be like to see God? I mean, the text says we will see him. To experience the embrace of God, what will that be like? I, the best I can do is to say it like this. It will be to know what it means to be loved by an infinitely lovely God. I can't put it better than Jonathan Edwards. And so I'm going to read an extended quote of his. And yes, I'm reading that whole thing. So you can read along with me and just maybe, you know what, maybe not read along. Just close your eyes and maybe listen. This is a little bit uh, dated in its language, but hopefully we'll give you a picture of what heaven will be like and how our communion with God will be wonderful. Listen to what Edwards wrote. The saints in glory shall see God's transcendent love to them. They shall see as much love in God towards them as they desire. They neither will nor can crave any more. When they see God so glorious and at the same time see how greatly this God loves them, what delight it will cause in the soul. Love desires union. They shall therefore see this glorious God united to them and see themselves united to him. They shall see that he is their father and that they are his children. They shall see God gloriously present with them, God with them, and God in them, and they in God. They shall see God, even their own God. When they behold this transcendent glory of God, they shall see him as their own. When they shall see that glory, power, and wisdom of God, they shall see it as altogether engaged for them. When they see the beauty of God's holiness, they shall see it as their own for them to enjoy forever. When they see the boundless ocean of God's goodness and grace, they shall see it to be all theirs. 
Will this life and all of its miseries and hardships and struggles not be worth it in that moment? Is not our suffering, as Paul says elsewhere, really hardly worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us? Heaven is not heaven because you'll see your relatives who have died in Christ. Heaven is not heaven because of its immense cultural value and production. Heaven is not heaven because we'll be able to walk in renewed Colorado in perfection forever whenever we want. Heaven is not heaven because we won't have anything to fear. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Heaven is heaven because God will be fully known by us. And the reason that this is, the reason that this is possible, uh, the reason that we can even begin to maybe scratch the surface of how beautiful and great and wonderful this is going to be, the reason that heaven is heaven for us is because although Jesus will be there, we don't deserve to be there. The reason that heaven is heaven is because Jesus, to get us before God the Father, was actually separated from God his Father in his cursed death on the cross so that in this day we can embrace him. Listen, Jesus had the anger and the hostility of the cross. He had the anger and the hostility of the righteousness of God against evil and wickedness dumped on his shoulders so that in that day we can be free before his face forever. Jesus said it is finished on the cross and he sweat drops of blood in the garden and he said, let this cup pass for me and his father said no and he drank the cup of God's judgment against this broken world down to the very last drop. Jesus did all of that so that we in that day will have a safe, perfect, beautiful, blessed home that will never end but will always only get better and better more and more forever and ever. Revelation has all sorts of crazy stuff in it, as we've seen. There's beasts, there's dragons, there's false prophets, there's heads being chopped off, there's people being martyred, there's suffering, there's weakness, there's shame, there's abuse, there's sin, there's rebellion, there's wars, there's disasters, there's droughts, there's plagues, there's fires, there's floods. It's all going to end. It's all going to end. So that you can enter into a world that's made perfect. And the best thing about it is that it's all going to end and you're invited to enter a new world for free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. You could never do that. Jesus has done it for you already. Jesus wins. Jesus will triumph. He has triumphed. Doesn't that awaken your longings for God's new world? The things that you're longing for are pathetic by comparison. So why are you wasting the energy of your heart and spirit chasing after them? The beauty of this is that we really don't even have to chase after it. We can simply rest in its coming reality because Jesus chased it down for us in his death and resurrection. That's the story of Christianity. And frankly, that's why I'm a Christian. Because the vision of Christianity is more hopeful than any other vision that I've heard. And this is available for you now in Christ Jesus. This is what your hearts were made to long for. Does this awaken your longings? If it does, then the simple response is to come to Jesus and rest. He will make all things new. He will bring you home. He will fulfill your longings. 
Come, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Thank you, God, for your new world. Thank you that you are going to make all things new. Thank you that you've redeemed us and our broken bodies and our broken souls, and that even now through the power of the Spirit, you are crafting us back together into the image of Jesus Christ. And in that process in this life, there is hardship, there's pain, there's suffering, there are things that we do not like and wish would end. And so we thank you that at the very end of the story of the scriptures, we see that one day it will end, one day soon, Jesus is coming quickly. And so God, we pray that you would awaken our hearts so that we might long for your new world. And as we long for that world, we pray that it would shape and form the way we live now. We pray that we would be patient pilgrims on the way to that city. We pray that you would fill us with hope, a hope that is real and lasting, a hope that will not perish, because Jesus has already done all that is necessary for us to enter in. So grant to us, God, the faith, grant to us the trust, grant to us the rest that we need to connect ourselves with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and long for that day. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.